Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to the Calling a Man's Answer Show, episode number 102. With keeping with our series of overturning Roe, today I wanted to talk about the background of natural law theory and the background and troubles with common law. We'll be sticking with this idea of overturning Roe, so throughout the entire thing, we'll be talking about Alito's opinion, the majoral opinion, and Jackson v. Dobbs. I hope you guys enjoy this episode of the Calling a Man's Answer Show. Take a listen. Okay, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Con Man's Answer Show. Today, I thought, because after the last episode regarding specifically um, the majoral philosophical backgrounds of the majority opinion, um, I gave a little bit of background of what I was going to be talking about in that, but I talked about things like natural law and common law a little bit, but I didn't give enough of a background. So I thought for this episode, for the people who wanted it, the people who actually, um, hold on real quick, people who actually like asked for it, I'd give a background of what natural law is and a little bit about common law so that you guys aren't held you know, hostage to information that I didn't actually share with you guys. So... Basically, there are two main players, natural law, that I'm going to be focusing on. One being Thomas Aquinas, who I mentioned in the last episode, basically, who's the father of Christian natural law theory. And then uh, Aristotle. If you've taken any philosophy at all, you should know who Aristotle is. But basically, natural law it is defined as a system or right slash justice that can be held to common or every person that is held in common. So it's a system of rights that is held commonly or equally to all humans. And instead of it being derived from the rules of society or the people who govern our society, it is derived from nature. So at a fundamental level, when we're starting to go towards Christian natural law theory with Thomas Aquinas, Aquinas is building off of what has already been established by Aristotle with his idea of rational natural law. So rational natural law theory makes the distinction that morality and law at a fundamental level cannot be separated so that anything that comes from nature, the laws of nature, intrinsically are connected with morality. This is due to the fact that at a singular and defining, a singular and defining belief of natural law is the idea that there are fundamental moral truths that should hold true in any human civilization. So in any civilization, there is a morality that comes from nature or God that are supposed to hold strong throughout human society or a human civilization. So because of this, and because of the fact that law is rooted in human nature, and all human beings are inclined by nature towards the good, as I said last episode, there cannot be a separation between justice and the law because morality and justice are integral to the law. So the separation thesis, just for some background, the separation thesis is is posited by a lot of legal analysis or, or a lot of legal thinkers. And it basically says that the separation thesis basically says that law and morality are two different things and therefore they should be separated because laws that govern society do not have anything to do with morality. They might have an overlap, but they're not intrinsically connected. With natural law theory and with rational natural law, this is completely wrong because it believes that law is rooted in human nature and human nature is rooted in the moral truths that govern all all things towards the good. 
So building off of this, Aristotle posited, or building off the nat rational natural law theory, Aristotle posited the idea that natural law is just part of the natural harmony of the cosmos, and therefore coinciding with it shows the balance between everything in the universe. So coinciding with the natural harmony or natural law that goes through all things, you're basically just playing a part in the balance of the universe. And not just Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle, it's also one more player that I actually want to talk about real quick, and that's Cicero. So building off of this natural harmony of the cosmos, Cicero, a few centuries later after Aristotle, posited the idea that is the human's ability to reason that allows them to assemble into the balance of nature. So building off of what Aristotle says about, about binding into natural harmony of the cosmos, Cicero also believes that the ability to reason that comes with the human mind allows us as humans to assemble into this balance of the cosmos. So an example of Cicero saying this comes from De Legibus, and he's quoted of saying, law is the highest reason implanted in nature and which commands what ought to be done and forbids the opposite. This reason when firmly fixed and fully developed in the human mind is law. So the highest possible ways that a human mind can reason through things is the way in which we come into believing or we come into this balance of the cosmos and that when you're fully developed as a human mind and you finally understand what the natural law is that's what law actually is it's you reasoning to the highest ability to the highest possible form of the cosmos so here cicero believes that it is the human mind's ability to reason in accordance with the natural rules and principles which govern existence that makes up natural law in doing so, or in reasoning, Cicero believes one would generate a perfect balance, a balance which was created by the higher power, the universe, or as we're going to go forward with uh, Thomas Aquinas, um, God. So it's not, it's not mm. difficult to see the connection between natural law, the higher power which comes from natural law, in God. So much like Aristotle, and some of this will be some of the things that I said in the last episode, but bear with me because it does have a point. Much like Aristotle and Cicero, Thomas Aquinas wrote that nature is organized for good purposes. However, unlike Aristotle, Aquinas went on to say that God created nature and the rules of the world by divine reason. So Aquinas's relationship to God was very complex and intricate, however, because he was what modern philosophers would refer to as a Christian natural law theorist, or what I would refer to as a Christian natural law theorist. How, however, or not however, he was a Christian natural law theorist, so, so he basically believed that everything pure came from God. And so an example of, of this can be found in the simple quote that he said, the light of reason is placed by nature and then therefore by God in every man to guide him in his acts. 
understanding this, we can see the relationship God has to natural law is one where God created all things, including the rules and principles that govern the universe. Also, we can also see how he believes that God gave people the ability to reason, which helps them understand those rules and principles, the rules and principles which he made himself. Therefore, for Aquinas, God is the only purpose that law even exists. And therefore, it is up to humans to use their faculty of reason in order to work towards God's plan. Much like I talked about last time, Christian natural law theorists believe that reason comes or reason is God's gift to the world. And it's our ability to understand even a small part of what his plan is for the universe. And so his relationship to God was very complex and intricate because he was he was technically believed was a Christian natural author, but he also had a lot of understanding that humans had a lot to do with what is going on in the existence. And so therefore natural law becomes this weird after Aquinas natural law becomes, I don't want to say completely connected to God and Christianity, but I mean, it's, it's a strong correlation between the two because the higher power, which most people in Western in the Western world believe in is God. And therefore, if you believe that all things good and just within the law come from the higher power and you also live in the Western world, therefore it's probably going to come from God. So I'm not going to say that all natural law theorists believe that natural law comes from God, but I'm going to say a lot of them. And I'm going to, say most of the ones on i'm going to say all of the ones on the supreme court are christian natural authors as i said last last um episode i'm not going to get into the four types of laws again because i did last episode so if you want to go listen to that episode real quick and then come back to this one go ahead and do that what i want to do now is building off of the background of what natural law is i want to talk about the principle of double effect so understanding natural law and that it's not necessarily connected with Christianity, but it, there is a strong correlation. The principle of double effect states that sometimes it is permissible to cause harm as a side effect or double effect of bringing about a good result, even though it would not be permissible to cause such a harm as a means to bringing about the same good end. What this means is that you sometimes it's okay to do bad things if in doing so it brings about the good that comes from natural law and this is important when we're talking about someone like leto or even just we see this in modern days where sometimes you got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet you know Sometimes people, this is even a, a big thing in Marxist uh, philosophy, because the idea is that like sometimes, like in Marxist thought, like it's violence is deemed necessary in order to bring out the socialist utopia, right? And the principle double effect says that sometimes if you're reasoning towards the best possible outcome, sometimes bad things got to happen. You know, an example of this comes from Marvel in uh endgame when or i think this is an infinity war when stephen strange goes and that meant iron man had to die principle of double effect 
So for Aquinas, even though humans have a tendency towards good, they still have free will, and therefore evil will still persist within the world. Moreover, because people are part of the polis, polis meaning just a body of people coming together to live in a society connectedly, this means that each and every individual has their own ends and therefore will inherently follow their desires or use their free will. Therefore, for Aquinas, under the principle of double effect, harm is able to be done so long as the intent behind the incident is not malicious. So an example that Aquinas would say is a permissible harmful act that is justified through the principle of double effect is the protection of one's wife or family in a burglary. If, let's say, someone broke into your house at a mere two o'clock in the morning, looking to steal belongings and harm whoever gets in the way, then shooting and killing the perpetrator to protect the lives of your wife and children is permissible so long as the intent was purely to protect and not to kill. For Aquinas, the intent matters more than the action, and therefore if harm is done as a result of the defense of one, one of the four cardinal virtues, then the act was legitimate. The four cardinal virtues are the ones that I said um, the one the ones that I said last episode and I'm I'm, I'm gonna make sure this is right, but I'm pretty sure it's uh, protection or yeah, it's the promotion and protection of human life and procreation, knowledge and sociability. I'm pretty sure that's right. Let me just look it up so that I'm not. I'm not like just talking out of my ass. Okay, so actually I was wrong. The four cardinal virtues are practical wisdom, justice, courage, and temperance. So for Thomas Aquinas, under the principle of double effect, if you cause harm to someone to protect one of these four cardinal virtues, then the harm is justified. And, and, and under the principle of double effect, intent matters. So basically, if you intend to kill or you intend to hurt someone, then it's never permissible. But if you intend to protect or uphold cardinal virtues and then therefore harm is done, then you are, then you are acting justly and the principle of the effect holds it morally true. So when we're thinking of something like a Christian natural law theorist with Samuel Alito and the majority opinion, He truly believes that he is reasoning to the best of his possibility when he believes that abortion is unlawful and unconstitutional. And he believes he's upholding the four cardinal virtues. And he knows that harm will be done by reversing the Supreme Court case. He knows that women will still want to get abortions and women will still die trying to get those abortions in states they cannot anymore. But he truly believes because his intent is to uphold four cardinal virtues or to uphold and to defend human life and procreation, he truly believes that it is a decision that people make. And so therefore it's okay if harm is done because his intent is fine. And now I'm not saying that he sits there and thinks this all the time. I'm just specifically saying that 
it's in the back of his mind that the intent matters. And it's in the back of every Christian natural law theorist's mind that when you're reading the law the in, and what you rule, your intent matters. And as a Catholic justice, he truly believes that human life starts somewhere in the womb. And therefore, it is his duty to rule any law which murders that unconstitutional. Even though, here's my whole problem with the whole thing. My whole problem is that if you walk back precedent, their whole thing is they don't believe that justices should be legislating from the bench, right? Yet, by walking back precedent that's set, you're legislating from the bench. So they're just circular reasoning. I, but like I said, this is more of a background. So if you guys want to hear my you know, take on the Supreme Court case, go back to that episode and, and, uh, and yeah, <laughs> sorry for that digression. Um, I'm going to go into some background of common law now for you guys, because I think it's important to understand that not only do you understand what natural law is and where natural law comes from and, and who are the three main characters and why this is even a modern day thought process and how that has to play in common law and what even is common law and how, what is precedent and what is, how is our legal system structured? So basing off of just one form that, so natural law or Christian natural law theory is just one way of interpreting legal analysis. But in this case, it is important because the main majority, majoral writer is a Christian natural law theorist. Common law is the system at which our legal system comes from, and this is the way in which the judicial branch works. So in order to understand the problems that arise out of common law, because obviously I'm calling a man, so I'm going to get into the problems, we must first understand what it is and where it comes from. So common law arose in England around the 11th and 12th centuries as a way to combat its competition, which was church law, and also due to the medieval kings beginning to consolidate their power and establish new institutions of royal, royal, Jesus, royal authority and justice. So after the 11th and 12th centuries, new forms of legal action functioned through a system of writs and royal orders up until the mid-18th century, when England formally placed a check on the king and was able to define English, which was English common law. So a check, meaning a check on their power. So the way in which the United States is set up is we're set up in three different branches of government. So we have the president or the executive, which most people say he's the sword. He has the enforcement, he has the military behind him, and he has the power to veto bills that are passed through the two houses of Congress, and he has the power to sign off on them. Then we have the Congress. Congress has the ability to declare war. They have the purse. They have all the money behind them. They're the people who write the law. And then we have the judicial branch, who is a group of nine lawyers who are appointed by whatever president is in office, and there is, their ability is to read the law and interpret the law. Their power comes from judicial review, as I said last episode. Now, each branch has a check on the other one in order to, in order for 
power to not be consolidated too much in one branch. When we were creating, when the founders were creating the United States, they were they were really afraid of the English king or um, just the consolidation of power in one man. And so this paranoia comes from the Enlightenment period. And basically this paranoia created the founders ability to write the constitution and to check or to have three branches of government which are each divided in its power which all have the ability to check the other one so that power cannot be consolidated in one place and therefore a dictator cannot arise so this check was finally formally placed on the king and it was english common law so under english common law englishmen took great pride in england's unique legal system throughout this mid-18th century and the one man who we're going to be mainly focusing on with common law is Sir William Blackstone. So Blackstone wrote the first systematic treaties on English common law and was the greatest source of influence on the United States adaptation of legal precedent, stare decisis, and American common law when we were when the founders were writing um, the Constitution, or they were, you know. So. What is common law? What are the main ideas in common law? And what does it even matter for us? So the main idea behind common law is to be consistent. And so the way in which common law remains consistent is through precedent. You might hear this word talked about a lot, but basically precedent is a principle that states that the previous judicial decisions, provided that they were made by a court of equal or higher status, must be followed for cases in which the facts were essentially the same. This is known as the doctrine of stare decisis. So basically, if a court of equal or higher status passes a judicial decision, therefore that decision has to be followed. The following of earlier cases is supposed to assure that like cases will be decided alike and also so that lower courts cannot disregard existing law, which has already been decided on by a previous court. Common law, in effect, binds legal systems to the past and therefore creates continuity over time. You understand how this becomes really tricky with something like Roe, which an old court passed and has now been disregarded. Within the United States, when the Supreme Court or the U.S. highest court comes to deliberate on a particular case, the nine appointed justices rule using legal precedent. So they use, they look back at prior cases and they rule based on that precedent. If a Supreme Court has decided one way in the past, then these current justices, rash, justices rationalize positions based on such. Then... Once the decision is made, whatever decision becomes of such, it becomes the law for everyone in the U.S. An example of this is Obergefell v. Hodges, more commonly known as the gay marriage case. Once Justice Kennedy ruled that gay marriage is a right to all, all states and state courts are bound to that precedent. Moving forward... It is supposed to be such that they cannot disregard it based on a personal state precedent, no matter how much they would like to do so. They are bound to the highest court of the land through common law system of precedent. So you might be asking, well, then how the fuck do they get rid of Roe? 
they didn't. The Supreme Court did. So the Supreme Court has the ability to rule a, a case that they have already ruled on as unconstitutional through a new a new case. They still have to use other precedent. So in in Alito's case, he looked at precedent before Roe and said that Roe was actually not his idea is that Roe was actually not a good reading of the law. It wasn't because it disregarded precedent. So he disregarded a case by looking at other precedent. So the, the ability of the Supreme Court to review their own cases is one. It's just lower courts cannot disregard what the highest court of the land says. So within the United States and common law, we our system is not just precedent. So we do not just follow precedent. We also follow statutes. So statutes are binding as well and can change from decree above. So an example of a group of statutes in the United is the United States Constitution. So the Constitution is a written document that is filled with amendments or the rights of the people. And these amendments are binding, binding Biden. <laughs> these amendments are binding, and therefore no state or system of government can deem them void without placing another statute on top of it or having a Supreme Court deem it unconstitutional. An example of statutes changing by decree is the 18th Amendment and then the subsequent 21st Amendment. So the 18th Amendment outlawed the consumption of alcoholic beverages or prohibition, while the 21st Amendment repealed the 18th Amendment. Statutes under the United States Constitution are binding. However, they can change through new statutes or new rulings from the bench. So if a legislature writes a law, the Supreme Court has the ability to read it and say, this is fucking bullshit. This is not law at all. This is unconstitutional. This does not follow the doctrine. And so... As I said last episode, the most the the most binding document in the United States is the Constitution. We give some of our sovereignty as free individuals up to the Constitution so that it's binding for all people. So now you might be thinking, well, this is just fucking stupid because it seems like they're supposed to follow precedent, but they never really do. It's bringing me to troubles with common law. Within the United States, it works as a double system where statutes and precedents are both binding. So the United States works as a system where a double system where statutes and precedent <clears throat> are both binding. Some theorists would argue that this prevents any radical change from occurring, while others would say that it prevents tyranny. Nonetheless, the American system is flawed, and therefore some problems arise under American common law that should be addressed going forward. For starters, where does precedent even come from? Where does it start? We know where it is now because the cases have lied, but where did it start? If it were the case that once a justice enacts a decision, it is therefore legally binding, then there has to be a first so-called justice to enact the first precedent. Since the American system is adopted from the English one, was it just the case that these customs and precedent from the English system were enacted on the U.S. soil as if it were his own legal precedent? This problem is created from the standpoint of consistency that common law deems so precious. How can something be consistent if it is adopted principles from an entirely different legal system? Right? Where does that precedent come from? Does it come from England? Well, we're not fucking England. 
Another pro I've actually read this on, or I've stated this on the podcast. So if you've heard this before, I'm sorry, but I'm going to go again, because this is one of the biggest problems I've ever thought of. Another problem that arises out of common law is the idea of legislating from the bench. Currently, I would argue that the only way real progressive change occurs within the United States is through the judicial branch. Apparently, it's the only way progressive, um, non-progressive change occurs, too. Civil rights, abortion, and marriage laws have all been decided upon within the last 60 years because American conservatives and liberals cannot decide on which statutes to enact. Again, the last five days, another abortion case was just ruled. This causes a race to the bench mentality where you have Justice Stephen Breyer retiring before he wants to, just so another conservative justice cannot be appointed. Political problems aside, should nine unelected officials really legislate their own personal morality in the powerhouse of the Western world? This problem is caused by common law where legal precedent is binding. And if a decision is passed, even as a 5-4 decision on a hot button topic, it's the law. Pragmatically speaking, consistency should be the ideal for these justices. But as a human being, it is nearly impossible to dissect all, if any, normativity when a moral issue is at your fingertips. Common law does not address this problem in the slightest and actually enhances it. Finally, can precedent ever really matter? I would argue no, because we just saw with Jackson v. Dobbs that it doesn't. Common law enthusiasts would argue, of course. However, every ill-willed decision made by the court has in some way, shape, or form been overturned by a new progressive court of nine officials. And now we can actually say that a progressive decision was just overturned by a conservative one. Let's take, for example, Plessy v. Ferguson upholding segregation laws to Jim Crow era, which was overturned by Brown v. Board of Education. Or we can talk about Roe v. Wade being overturned by Jackson v. Dobbs. Dred Scott v. Sanford, overturned by the 13th and 14th Amendment. Korematsu v. United States, overturned by Trump v. Hawaii, etc., etc., etc. No matter how you look at these cases or how you deem them precedent, if it's not really legally binding, it should not be overturned. Or if it is really legally binding, it should not be overturned. However, as rational beings, we know this cannot be the case. So the question then becomes, what is the role of precedent? Is it a binding principle that all common law systems must follow? Or is it a system to be fiddled with? Either way, it seems as though precedent is not always as binding as common law says it is and creates more problems than it solves. It's important to note that when we're going over this stuff, common law and the United States are flawed in and of themselves. And when we look out and we see an abortion case being overturned, it's important to note how that even is possible. If legal precedent is really binding, then it shouldn't be possible. Yet we think about things like Plessy v. Ferguson, which says that separate is equal and, and created the segregation laws of Jim Crow. And then we see it being overturned by Brown v. Board, and we think, hell yeah. So legal precedent cannot always be legally binding in our rational minds. However, when we look at Roe v. Wade being overturned by Jackson v. Dobbs, we might have a little sick stomach. It's important to note that 
one of the main purposes of the United States was to limit when it was when it was founded in 1787. It was to limit the ability of radical change to occur through the decisions of one man. And then in Marbury, Marbury v. Madison, ju- the judicial branch gave them the power to make constitutional change. And so within the last, I mean, since Marbury v. Madison, the Supreme Court has used its foot to change the way they want it to. In Dred Scott v. Sanford, they ruled that a man was property and therefore he could not sue for his family's sake, on his family's sake. Sick. Eventually, we came and we passed the 13th Amendment and then the 14th Amendment and then the 15th Amendment and so on. I want you to know that going forward, something's going to have to change. The system is not working the way it is supposed to, and we're leaving it up to nine unelected appointed officials to decide on what the way we should be living our lives. Does the Supreme Court have to change? Should we pack the court? Should it be, should they be appointed by the, instead of by the president, by an electoral process? I don't know the answers to any of these questions. What I do know is I just gave you guys some background on natural law theory and common law. And if you have any questions, please comment down below what they are. If I got something wrong, tell me I'm an idiot. I have a bachelor's degree in politics and government, but I'm not a genius. I don't have a PhD. If you guys enjoyed this, give it a like, subscribe, share. Tell your friends about my show. If you want me to do more of these little philosophical backgrounds, and I th- I'm, I'm going to because I like doing it. Um, but other than that, man, it's calling a man's answers. Episode 102, the philosophy of natural law and common law.